Uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. And Evan, uh, we like funny stuff in here. We don't take ourselves too seriously, but we take the Bible very seriously. Uh, so we turn to the book of Hebrews. This is God's word, starting in Hebrews 4, verse 14. And this is God's word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And let's pray one more time. Father, May the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's a little music lingo for you. In fact, we have a drummer in the room right now, and uh, we got a sound man in the room right now, and we got some players in here. Uh, a, uh, oh, a couple drummers in the room. What about it? Uh, if I said, um, who's on a kit this weekend? Any drummer, any musician would know exactly what I'm talking about. Any veteran. If I said, who's on the kit? They would go, oh, that's who's playing the drums. Or if I said, who's on the tubs? Tubs is another synonym for drums. Or if I said, hey, who's riding the throne? There's not a veteran who wouldn't know exactly what I'm talking about. Who's riding the throne? Because a drum throne is a drum throne. In fact, if you, look, if you type in drum throne on Google, uh, you will find a bunch of stools. It's, the, it's literally the thing a drummer sits on is the drum throne. All right, so that's the preface to my story. Back in the day in my old band uh, years ago, our drummer used to mercilessly tease the horn section, and he used to call him the Tower of Sour. And uh, the Tower of Power, of course, is an old jazz uh, band with a prominent horn section, and he called him the Tower of Sour all the time and was very critical of our trumpet player, which unjustly, our trumpet player was awesome. He was a, he was a screech guy, and he was great. Um, so, but he would, he would say, yeah, you guys are the Tower of Sour. Oh, you're just the Tower of Sour. And after about six months of merciless taunting, our trumpet player shoots back, well, so you reign on the throne of groan. <laughs> and we were all like, Doug, yeah, man, he put an end to that. All right. The only parallel to our Bible passage is that term, throne of groan. Um, it's an excellent wordplay, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it, and all that. But um, the, the connection, I think, is, is this. Christians love the notion of a throne of grace. We love it. We love knowing that we can approach God, that we can come with freedom and confidence. We love a throne of grace. But our default mode is often a throne of groan. Where we think of God pretty much sitting up there in heaven on his throne, ruling humanity, going, ugh, I'm so sick of their shenanigans and sin. I can barely look at them. I can barely tolerate them. Uh, yes, all these Christian people I saved uh, by the blood of my own son, uh, they just continually uh, show their uh, lack of faithfulness, their lack of um, sincerity and devotion and compassion. Um, and God's pretty much fed up. Now, I know that you can go hard the other way and go, oh, God doesn't really care if we sin. He doesn't, he doesn't care about this little thing or that little thing. That's an age-old heresy. But so is the idea of a throne of grace. Uh, throne, sorry, throne of groan. 
A grace is good. Groan is bad. A throne of groan. Um, It's easy to become overwhelmed by the depth of our own degradation, isn't it? Especially as you're a maturing Christian. In fact, if you're a person who, uh, let's say you get in an argument with somebody at work and you say, well, I was right and you were wrong on that particular point. And you go home and you tell your wife, well, I was right and he was wrong. If that's you, you're probably not very spiritually healthy. Because any maturing Christian goes, you know what? There's pollution in every motive and every action, everything I do. The, the, the more I'm a Christian, the older I am, the more I see, man, pride is dictating so much of what I'm doing. Everything's affected by it. Um, but here's why this passage is so helpful. It, it, it steers us away from the throne of groan toward the throne of grace. And if you want to know what the big idea is here today, it is this. The priesthood of Jesus makes the saved soul ceaselessly secure. Now, forgive my love of consonants, uh, but uh, that's, that's a good point. The priesthood of Jesus makes the saved soul ceaselessly secure. Continuing with the S sounds, supreme supremacy is our first point. Let's go to uh, the passage, verse 14. It says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, look up if you would. Uh, you know how important I think context is and that if you, um, if you don't look at a verse in the context in which it's written in the book which in it's, which, and it's written in the context of the whole counsel of the word of God, if you don't do that, you can't understand it properly. Okay? You know that context is important. I talk about it all the time. But don't look down just yet. Let me read this to you again. Don't look down. We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. But that's not the way the verse reads. The the, the verse reads, since then, we have a great high priest. So that means he's addressing something he just said, and it's a big something. Look at it. The The verse right before it, verse 13. No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Ah, now we see there is great need. Now we see there is no confusion in the message. Now we see someone has a final moral, spiritual say, and that someone is not us. It's not how we define right and wrong. It's how this, this reigning, creating, governing perfect God defines it, not us. And we're naked and exposed in every thought and action before this God. Now, that is, that's scary uh, trouble if we're naked and exposed, right? Further, the writer of Hebrews <coughs> is addressing uh, the Jewish mind, and they were well aware of um, the function of uh, an Old Testament high priest, a, a high priest serving in the tabernacle, the temporary uh, <coughs> tent that moved around, or the temple, which was the permanent structure. They were very understanding of what an Old Testament high priest was doing. Now, y'all have heard of Yom Kippur, right? That's the, that's the Day of Atonement. Uh, that's when the high priest would represent the people of Israel before God. And before he would represent the people of Israel before God, you know, he would go into the tabernacle or the temple. He would go through the outer court. He would go into the holy place. He would then go into the most holy place. Before he could do that, 
he would um, make a sacrifice, a bull and a ram for himself, and then he would take uh, the blood of a goat, and he would go into this most holy place once a year, ladies and gentlemen. And you know what they would do? They would tie little bells, they would sew little bells to the bottom, the hem of his garment so they could hear him in there. And they would tie a rope around his leg so they could drag him out in case God struck him dead. That was the understanding. You go into the most holy place where the presence of God is manifest at the mercy seat where the blood of the goat is poured. That would happen once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. Everybody knew what was going on once a year like that. Now, if that sounds weird and graphic and disturbing and foreign and otherworldly to you, good. It's supposed to be. Now, it would have been less weird for a rural culture that, uh, you know, kills goats and eats them. Okay, that's strange to us for us to see blood and, an, and an an, killing an animal and all that. I bet you all have never killed an animal except a bird or a squirrel with your car. But um, uh, it was a very prominent thing for them to know what was happening with the priest and the blood and all that. And so they knew that sinners must pay for the sin guilt with their lives. That's the, that's the message behind all that, all right? So um, that's why the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, no creature is hidden from God's sight. We're all naked, exposed. We have to give an account to this God. But since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So the Jewish reader would think and understand exactly what Paul is saying. They would say, oh, that's what this Jesus is doing. Um, he, he's, um, you know, he, he's, um, it's the significance of the picture. You've got the great high priest who goes in the most holy place, but then you've got Jesus who's passed through the heavens and he is in the presence of God um, interceding for us. So they would have immediately thought of the high priest on the day of atonement going through the veil when they hear about Jesus passing into the heavens, going to be in the presence of God. Now notice the verbiage here. Notice what he says. He's, he doesn't say Jesus is a high priest. He is. But he says he's a great high priest. Now, high priest, high, is already a grand term. All, everyone would know what that is. There are priests, and then there's the high priest, one guy. He's saying Jesus is the great high priest. And he's saying that so there's no confusion as, the superior, as to the superiority of Jesus. Now, what makes Jesus a great high priest? What's the difference with this Jesus and, what, and, and uh, the way he functions? Well, flip ahead a few pages just to chapter 9, uh, verse 24. Chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered... Not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, the tabernacle or the temple, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world, Jesus that would be. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So that's an explanation as to why Jesus is the great high priest. Not only is he in the very presence of Yahweh, 
But he doesn't have to be crucified again and again and again and again. He has made the payment, the sin debt payment, once forever for all, saved. He's paid the penalty. It's done. That's why we say uh, the full and accomplished work of Jesus Christ. That's why we say, that's why he said it is finished. Now look at chapter 8 of, um, of uh, Hebrews, verse uh, 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So you see that Christ's work needs not be repeated, need not be repeated. It's full, final, and forever. Application number one for you on this point. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing needs to be added to salvation. Now you probably sit there and you say, oh, well, I know that. Well, uh, let's make the gospel perfectly clear. If in your heart you consider God and yourself and you think, well, God is perfect and I'm not perfect, nobody's perfect. If you think about that and you think about what Jesus Christ did on the cross and um, you hear me, you hear that I'm saying Jesus paid your sin debt. He took your punishment. Uh, He took the spanking. He was sent to the room, uh, the bedroom. He is the one who went to jail. He's the one who took the punishment. He's the one who paid the sin debt. And uh, you say, well, I hear you, I hear you. And in your mind, you think, but... I just got to try to live as good a life as I can and hope I make it in. If that's you, if there's Jesus Christ plus anything, you do not understand the gospel, friend. It is Christ and Christ alone. That's the gospel that the Bible teaches. Now, if, if you're a Christian, which a lot of you are, most of you are probably, um, we're, we're pulled back to the throne of groan, aren't we? Where you just go, oh, Lord, I, I got I to gotta do better. I, which is great to want to do better. But we, we tend to think, I got to get my life together. I, we've been out of fellowship. It's been hard to come to church. And we've just been kind of out of fellowship. And I, we just got to do, we just got to do, we got to fix ourselves up and then get back in there. That, that's not the gospel either, ladies and gentlemen. That's the throne of groan. That's imagining that God's up there going, ugh. I can't even stand them. What he sees is the blood of his son covering your sin. What God sees is Christ's righteousness. What God sees is you as a beloved child cleaned up, made acceptable, allowed to give worship to God that is acceptable to him. He even makes that possible. Now, it is, that's not to say that we shouldn't be mortified over sin. We should be. We should grieve over sin. We should be sorry. We should confess our sin. We're told to do that. But ladies and gentlemen, we're not to grovel in it. We're not to grovel in it and think, the only way I can climb out of this mess is in my own power. And then I'm going to come back into fellowship with the, the King of Kings. That's not the gospel either, friend. Christ has paid it. He's paid it all. And it's a throne of grace. You know, um, when I went to Ukraine 15 years ago or so, 14 years ago, I toured a monastery. Oh, and I did, it was Dr. Young was there too. That was fun. Um, you know, because they claimed to have this, the, a finger of Stephen. Oh, we got Stephen's finger. 
And, uh, you know, we're having a lot of fun with it. Oh, really? Steven's finger? Which finger? Is it the best finger or the worst finger? You know, is it Yeva's toe? Ha, 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 ha. You know, it was fun. Uh, but they took us down to the basement. And, uh, you know, a monastery, an old, you know, an 800-year monastery, uh, they're, they're funky places, man. They're musty. There are skulls and stuff in the basement and all that stuff. And the, the lady who was bringing us through was going, ah, oh, we got Steven's finger and there's, here's some skulls. And she told us about this monk who was there 600 years ago or so. And uh, to, to atone for his own sins, he went to the basement of the monastery and he buried himself waist down, st- you know, standing up, dug a hole, buried himself, filled the dirt in. So he's waist down in the cold, damp, dank, funky basement of this monastery and he stayed there for a month. Now, you can imagine the cold earth seeping into your bones and uh, how bad your toes would feel, and how, mm, I don't know, unsanitary it would be after a month. I mean, he's in his filth. And the guide was going, you see how righteous he was, and you see how much he loved God. And we're going, oh, that is anti-Christ. That is anti-Christian. That is anti-gospel. This idea that I have to, I have to flagellate to, to impress this God. No, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus paid it all. Don't add anything else to the gospel. Application number two on this verse. Uh, notice it says, um, if you look back at it here, Since then, we have a great high priest. We have him. It's a reality. Thus, it says, hold fast our confession. You know, it says the same kind of a thing uh, in chapter 3, verse um, uh, 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Hold fast. Our confidence. You can do it. You know why? Because Christ is faithful. You know why you can hold fast your confession? Because we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens and he's in the presence of God right now interceding. We have him now. So holding fast to our confession is to embrace and acknowledge and rest in the gospel and all its benefits. We'll talk a little bit more about those benefits toward the end. All right, our second and last point, successful sympathy. Uh, I chose those words um, pretty carefully. Uh, sympathize is right in our text, so it's not hard, for, not, not hard to see that. Uh, it's kind of a coat hook for you to hang your thoughts on, these sermon points, right? So you look at verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, um, so that's, you see the sympathy word there, but successful sympathy, um, I, I've added that idea because I think it's an accomplished sympathy. We can sympathize with something and not be able to do anything about it. Christ has done everything about it. And we need to explore just why he can sympathize and why I would say that it's uh, successful. In other, in other words, it's a manner unlike any other kind of sympathy. So question. If Jesus is the Son of God, which means he is God, and listen, the Bible is 
is completely clear. It makes claims of Jesus' divinity over and over and over again. And Jesus himself makes claims of divinity over and over and over again. In fact, right before he's crucified, they're saying, uh, hey, are you really the son of God? And he goes, it is as you say. And they're going, aha, we know what you're saying. You're saying that you are divinity. That you're saying that you're the same essence and stuff as Yahweh. You're saying that you're divine. So my point is, my question is, if Jesus is the son of God, if he really is of the same stuff as, as God, the Trinity, if that's really true, then why is the issue of his sympathy even raised? I mean, he knows everything. He's not, he's not surprised. He sees what's going on. He sees the hurt. He can sympathize. Why does it have to say that? Um, and, you know, why does, it, why does it talk about his humanity here, too? I mean, he's, he's come to earth. He's the son of God, but he's, he's human. And because of that, he's able, it says, to sympathize um, with us in our weaknesses. Now, why? Uh, it says in verse 15, uh, he was uh, in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. How does his being tempted, ladies and gentlemen, make him able to sympathize with us? Is that a good question? How does the God who knows everything, he takes on a human nature, he's tempted in everything as we are, and he's able to sympathize with us in a profound way. Why? Well, let's go to C.S. Lewis for an excellent thought. This is kind of a long quote, but you'll love it. Um, Only those who, this is C.S. Lewis, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. That makes sense thus far? Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Jesus is the only complete realist. That's why he's able to sympathize. Not only was he tempted like you and me, but he didn't give in to temptation like you and me. He resisted and resisted and resisted like we resist the wind and try to stand in it. He did stand. He did not fail. He did live a perfect life. That's why he can sympathize. He knows the intensity of temptation like you have never known or I. Is that not an amazing point? Jesus understands because he's resisted temptation fully. You know, there's also a... Oh, by the way, um, I've used this illustration a few years ago, but... You know what? You ever heard of sympathy strings? To use another uh, music illustration, sympathy strings. You know, the violin as we know it, instruments that we know it, they're just today's instruments. You back up four, five hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, twelve hundred years ago, they're different. Violins look different. Bassoons look different. Trombones look different. Um, But sympathy strings existed on many stringed instruments, so that you have the four strings on top, and then you've got strings that are underneath that are just you can't even touch them and play them. They're just, they're just hanging there. And what happens is you play one note and it goes, and it triggers 
the open strings, it picks up the frequency and goes, and the sympathy strings just start ringing. And let me tell you, I have guitars hanging on the wall of my office. I have guitars in the office at our house. There's a guitar in the living room. And every once in a while, some tone will happen. I'll whistle something. I'll say something. And I can hear guitars on the wall going, the strings just start playing by themselves. They find the frequency. It resonates. And the strings just start to play. Sympathy strings. What I'm saying to you is Jesus can sympathize. He's resisted temptation. He knows what you're going through. And not only that, he knows what you're going through to the fullest. He understands it better than you do because he's resisted. And like a sympathy string, he resonates. Now, uh, there's also a double negative here that's pretty darn cool. Uh, If you look at verse 15, it says, um, we do not have a high priest who is unable isn't that interesting? We do not have a high priest who is unable. You, you, he could have just said, uh, we do have one who is able. <laughs> but to, to give it an extra oomph, he goes, hey, hey, we do not have a high priest who is unable. Uh, the writer is trying to double tap our souls. He's trying to put to death fears of judgment and at the same time comfort us uh, concerning the strenuous things of the soul. Jesus' sympathy um, was and is successful because he himself was successful. He is successful. His sacrifice was accepted by God because it was an acceptable sacrifice. Now, verse 16, and we'll bring it on home. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, listen, we sing, Arise, my soul, arise. We've sung it many, many times over the years here at this church, and I just love it. I think it's really a song that kind of defines us. Um, but you know, there's that one verse that says that talks about Jesus bleeding wounds, and it says uh, that they strongly plead for me before God. They plead, Jesus bleeding wounds, uh, the, his spilled blood, his life poured out, pleads before God and says, Don't let that ransom sinner die. Don't let that ransom sinner die. Don't let that ransom sinner die. It continually pleads the case, continually pleads the work that Christ did. But it's not just the legal transaction that that, that is pleaded. Ours, ladies and gentlemen, is a gospel of promise. Um, It's founded on promise. It's upheld by promise. It's implementing promise at all times by the perfect uh, wisdom and intention of God. And so what that means for us, ladies and gentlemen, is not that we're just safe forever. We are. But it means that in Jesus' finished and accomplished work, we're okay in the now. We're okay. We're safe in the now. We're received in the now. We have full access. We have a backstage pass. We um, can enjoy the presence of God. We can be in his throne room uh, And we could come to this God who loves to dispense mercy and grace in our time of need. It's a good word. Let's pray. Holy Father, um, we come before a God who is holy, 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 and absolutely burning in pure justice. 
and yet you have made a way unto yourself by the only way possible, the divine God-man substitutionary curse-bearer who is Jesus Christ. We thank you for that singular way, and we thank you for the fullness of that singular way that uh, you will receive us forever and now. And we pray these things joyfully in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, you guys. Thank <laughs> you.